Welcome to another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael. In this episode, we'll be looking at issues in anti-corruption law. Can an activist regulatory stance overcome legislative problems in preventive anti-corruption agencies? In this presentation, we'll be reviewing the topic of anti-corruption law and specifically making reference to several papers that have been written in this area. What problem is this type of research looking to address? Many countries have set up preventative rather than what they call repressive anti-corruption agencies, particularly in the 2000s and 2010s. So we want to look at, well, what's the point of a preventative anti-corruption agency if they have no repressive powers, if they don't investigate, if they don't prosecute? Uh, are they generally useless? In this presentation, we talk mostly about the Balkans because that's the area of greatest experimentation after these countries followed international advice to set up anti-corruption agencies, but we'll be discussing these types of agencies worldwide. So what is a preventive anti-corruption agency? This idea of a preventive anti-corruption agency heralds back to the UN Convention Against Corruption. In that convention, countries are admonished to create anti-corruption agencies, and in particular those which serve to prevent corruption. Now, it's less certain whether the active investigation and prosecution of corruption itself represents a preventative action in fighting corruption. So beyond the convention's admonition to prevent corruption, to create public bodies with the mandate to prevent corruption, they're extremely vague about how countries should pursue this, particularly when all countries already have their own functioning police departments. This idea of corruption prevention heralds back to Hong Kong in the 70s and specifically its independent commission against corruption. In the 1990s and 2000s, several very famous consultants went around the world showing how Hong Kong's anti-corruption agency engaged in what is basically PR, public relations. They showed how they would give the population pamphlets and organize music videos and talks and encourage the population not to give bribes and government officials not to take bribes. Beyond those activities, we know much less about what preventive anti-corruption activities consist of. In order to understand such preventive anti-corruption lawmaking, we have to review, of course, the way these laws are made and disseminated. As we mentioned, the UN Convention requires signatory states to create these anti-corruption agencies. So what they do is they create within their own local legislation some kind of mandate or implementing act. Below that act, though, individual government bodies have discretion in deciding, well, what particular activities should they implement in order to support the broad goals listed in the legislation. So if you read the legislation of most of these countries, the idea of setting up this anti-corruption agency or its overall objectives are vague, and it's up to customs, the police, uh, health ministry, education ministry, or even a department such as we represent here, like at the ministerial level, to create instructions, directions, decisions, which support those broad aims in the legislation, and even below the head of the ministry or department at the sub-department, the division level and so forth, specific instructions that individuals take relying on the legal authority of that broader legislative act. 
So then there's two levels of thinking about these preventive agencies. The first is how do we design the act itself? How do we interpret the act? And second is how do we write those agency-specific level regulations in a way to support the broad mandate of preventing corruption, whatever the word prevention means. Now, in our paper, we discuss the specific example of Montenegro's Directorate for Anti-Corruption Initiatives. This is a specific case study looking at a more general question. And in several other papers, such as you see in front of you, we tackle this very general question of how does a line manager or how does a minister in an executive agency take these very broad principles that are enshrined in legislation and put them into practice, especially such a broad concept as prevent. How does an executive agency interpret prevention? How far do its competencies go in assuring this abstract legal principle? And in figure five from this particular paper about Montenegro, we show the outline of a draft regulation, which uh, in the case of Montenegro's preventative anti-corruption agency might be used as a way of supporting the broader government push toward preventing corruption. When we talk about preventive agencies, we usually talk about its mandate to collect and use information to try and carry out risk assessment. So most of you have probably seen these graphs where they show how many people in a population think different government agencies are corrupt. Of course, at the working level, there's much more refined data that an anti-corruption body like this can help other agencies collect. But that's just one example to show how data can help focus a government agency's activity. Let's not forget that particularly in the case of these preventive agencies, it's not the job of the anti-corruption agency itself to engage in reducing corruption, but it's the mandate of the minister or the head of the department or what have you that's directly responsible for fighting corruption. So the limits of the mandate of an agency like this is simply to advise. Legal drafting and rulemaking represent another key area for these preventive anti-corruption agencies, and that's specifically what our work is designed to focus on. We describe internal audit, performance appraisal, and particularly knowledge management. How can a preventive anti-corruption agency learn and improve on its own performance rather than just parking a bunch of deadbeat civil servants to work there rather than somewhere else, which is what is often happening in many jurisdictions. And we even describe how to set up a system of opinions and advisories issued by the preventive agency to other executive bodies, which either might be required to implement or encouraged to implement, where there might be peer pressure or where there might actually, depending on the civil service regulations enforced, the executive agency might actually be legally required to carry out those advisories and opinions. But for academics, we have to look at the broader picture. And the broader theme of this paper and the other papers which we describe hones in on the issue of this international anti-corruption jurisprudence. Over the last 10-15 years, countries have started to develop their own ideas about how anti-corruption law should be. More than taking a comparative stance, rather than just saying, well look, there's a bunch of countries, this is how they do it, they're all interesting and valid, then what about that sub-legislative level? How do we think about the way that governments pass 
ministerial level regulation in order to support these broad laws. And most people would agree that's where the biggest weakness now in fighting corruption is, is that if most countries have been bullied by the OECD or even their own electorates in the case of the OECD to adopt these anti-corruption acts, then how do we think about designing the regulation that actually implements those laws? How do we get ministers to conduct their own surveys, to issue their own advisories, to conduct their own risk assessments? Those questions form the foundations of this emerging international anti-corruption jurisprudence. And so when we talk about anti-corruption law, we talk about this broader thinking about what are the limits of rights and obligations of executive agency within the broader constitutional framework to ensure that bribery and other forms of corruption don't exist. And these are questions which we continue to tackle throughout the years. This has been another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael.